Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. The first time we realized that there is no internet or connection via mobiles, it was completely terrified for us. This is Noor Swerky, a 35-year-old community activist living in Gaza. Noor and I have been communicating over the past week using voice memos on WhatsApp. Now, she's in a shelter. I prepared my children and gave them a plan in case they didn't find me or something happened to me. They have to flee towards uh, the nearest hospital in, in our area. This is Politico Tech. It is Wednesday, November 1st. I'm Stephen Overly. Normally, Noor lives with her family in Gaza City's upscale Ramal neighborhood. But Israeli bombings have devastated the area. Like more than 2 million Palestinians living in this enclave, her shaky internet and mobile service went dark this past Friday, as Israel unleashed its heaviest bombardment yet in response to the deadly October 7th attack by Hamas militants. Since the war began, more than 1,400 people in Israel and over 8,000 people in Gaza have been killed. Israel has said it's targeting Hamas infrastructure and weapons, but civilians are suffering after Israel cut off food, fuel, water, electricity, and for more than 30 hours, the internet. But this is the first time we lost the connection with the world, and it's horrible feeling to... uh, I can't describe more. It's horrible. That connection is now back, to an extent. Internet and mobile connectivity have degraded significantly in Gaza since the war began. Electricity is intermittent for most people, and bombs have destroyed some critical infrastructure. There is some solar uh, power uh, as an alternative, so we charge our phones, and um, there is a small hub. We use it for the uh, internet connection. Nor uses solar power to get online and communicate. But the disruptions for her and other Palestinians are constant. That means a lifeline to friends, family, emergency services, the news aid organizations, is now unreliable. Despite this uh, issue was solved and we get back the the communication and connection with the world, but uh, still this uh, connection is sometimes bad, uh, weak, and sometimes we lose uh, this uh, connection. Uh, But uh, it's better than nothing. But there are organizations tracking the connectivity challenges. NetBlocks is an internet and cybersecurity watchdog based in London that has been monitoring internet access in Gaza and Israel since the October 7th attack. NetBlocks keeps track of internet infrastructure and endpoints, essentially the devices that are actually able to get online. It gives the company a window into the parts of an internet network that are operating normally. On the show today, NetBlocks director Alp Toker explains the state of the internet in Gaza and tells me why getting online even matters for Palestinians simply trying to survive. Since this conflict started um, October 7th, obviously internet connection has been down significantly in Gaza. Can you talk a bit about what you've generally observed since the, the attack on October 7th? Yeah, we've been tracking uh, disruptions to internet service in uh, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, since the very beginning of the conflict. I think uh, just from the very day that there were attacks and then obviously the attacks initiated by Hamas and then 
the counterattacks, um, uh, Gaza and infrastructure was impacted. We saw uh, the smaller internet providers drop off first. So this was quite a sudden uh, drop, but also not a huge uh, amount of connectivity in terms of the overall connectivity right at the start of the conflict. But even then, it was obvious that this infrastructural impact was happening. Uh, but we really saw this uh, a kind of disruption to connectivity pick up and people actually falling offline, ending up in a situation of a near total blackout. This is quite a recent development. Uh, we've seen this happen for, for a few reasons, partly because of uh, the power shortages, but also uh, due to the kinetic impacts of warfare and, and beyond. And when you say the, the effects of warfare, uh, you're talking about infrastructure being t- destroyed by, by bombings and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we've kind of tracked uh, destruction of infrastructure, actual buildings uh, linked with telecommunications that then just result in chunks of that connectivity being lost and not necessarily coming back. So that indicates physical damage to infrastructure. Uh, but also we've seen that power supply, when, when generators are impacted, uh, then those providers can fall offline because they lose their backups. So you've got both the direct impacts to things like fiber lines, uh, towers, but also you've got this uh, secondary impact of, of the energy loss, which is also a kind of a kinetic impact. I'd like to ask about this recent internet blackout that we saw on, I believe, Friday night um, and lasted over 24 hours. What did that look like on your end? How did that show up for you? Yeah, we tracked that um, near total blackout on, on Friday as, as the single largest disruption to connectivity since the beginning of the conflict. It was, it was somewhat different to what we've seen before in the way that it impacted uh, so much of the connectivity and it was it's so sudden, it wasn't a kind of drop off. So uh, this is quite interesting in, in terms of where that connectivity is coming from. Gaza uh, relies to some, well, very much on, on Israeli internet service for um, its upstreams insofar as it doesn't have its own international connectivity. It's reliant, much like the electricity supplies is reliant on Israel. It's reliant on Israel's um, networks. So uh, something has happened there that has severed that connectivity that exists in the Gaza Strip uh, to its, its uplink to Israel. And we know that that happened around the same time as, as a major bombardment by Israel. Um, but it's also quite interesting that um, there have been statements uh, about uh, that the US, that sources have said that Israel has been involved in, in kind of limiting service through technical means to uh, the Gaza Strip. So I believe we're seeing both forms of disruption, both the actual impacts of the warfare, but also some degree of restriction that's happening during this conflict through technical means. And so did you, I mean, on your end, did sort of your numbers just kind of drop to zero, essentially, and what you were seeing from a connectivity standpoint? Yeah, no, it was very interesting. Uh, we saw that uh, connectivity, particularly connectivity that end users uh, receive, uh, falling off very significantly. We saw that some infrastructure re- remained, which is quite interesting. But within that infrastructure that remained, we saw no daily usage patterns, which means that that's just technical infrastructure. So in some sense, there are some lines that are on, but nobody's able to use them. Uh, that's obviously one smoking gun for some kind of targeted disruption attack on that network. That lasted, obviously, until the, the restoration on the weekend, uh, when there was a very rapid recovery, and then it reached the levels as they were before Friday. So this blackout lasted for some two days, but um, at the end of it, uh, the restoration meant that it was, you know, it was right back to the level it was before Friday. So it was a fairly rapid recovery. I was going to ask you what, what things look like now, from what you can tell. Yeah, so we've been seeing uh, some intermittent service. So what we see is that service is there, and then it drops out. 
And we've been tracking the reasons for these. And we've seen, for example, on Sunday evening, uh, there have been endemic shortages to energy supply, um, that there was a particular um, generator that, that uh, blacked out and caused the, uh, the telco to then uh, fail through many regions of, of, of the Gaza Strip. So we're now seeing this, this new stage of this warfare where you've got almost a siege situation, where now it's all about that infrastructure and energy supply that is very limited. So yes, intermittent at the moment, uh, tracking is, is in between some 20% and 40% of pre-war levels in terms of connectivity. So still heavily impacted, but not the near total blackout that we had over the weekend. And 20 40 to 40%, I, I guess just in very practical terms, I mean, does that mean it's working 20 to 40% of the time? Does that mean 20 to 40% of geographic areas? How, what exactly is that percentage reflecting? Yeah, it reflects a combination of those factors. So, you know, if, if you're offline, you may experience this as a near total blackout from day one, insofar as if you're unlucky and you're in, in those areas that are offline, then you, you may not be getting any connectivity. But it also reflects that there can be some intermittency. So even if, if there is an area that is online, then that area can go off and online. So I think that some will be experiencing this as flaky uh, service that comes and goes right now, but others will still be in a situation where they find it very difficult to communicate. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. You know, one question I'm sort of curious about it and that you've mentioned here in different ways is this notion that the Internet and access to it can be used as sort of a, a tool of war. And we've seen this in Ukraine, I think, as well, um, following the Russian invasion. How do you think about that issue and this idea that now the internet and, and access to it can sort of be be weaponized in ways? Yeah, I mean, we've been tracking the same kind of thing in Ukraine, obviously, since the beginning of, of, of Russia's invasion there. And it, it's got quite interesting in terms of uh, when does internet connectivity become a tool of warfare? When can it be used, seen as basically an extension of, of the military apparatus? And I think that uh, you have to take a nuanced approach. I mean, if you take a look back, say, a decade, you know, we would uh, campaign internet for all, open internet for everyone. And it's obviously a bit more nuanced than that insofar as these are very powerful tools. Cyber is a powerful tool. And in some sense, a military opponent has a right to protect itself. And that may extend to restricting telecommunications. However, you have to also take into consideration the humanitarian aspect and the fact that internet connectivity is vital for day-to-day uh, -day life, for safety, and also for, for telling the truth and, and relaying uh, facts as they happen. Because if you don't get that news from the ground, then you're just going to get that vacuum filled with uh, disinformation. So I think that, yes, internet connectivity is a right, even in a very diff difficult situation like this, where, where uh, there have obviously been atrocities and uh, there's a case to be made. I think that it's very important that the truth and the right information continues to flow from uh, the source of, of the location, from, from the location. So, yeah, I think that that internet community has to stay on, however uncomfortable it is for, for uh, Israel at the moment. 
you know, obviously there are a lot of shortages in Gaza right now, you know, food, water, electricity, things that are, are really vital to, to just life. Um, and so it, I think for some, it could raise the question of why, why the internet matters. And I, I think you touched on it a bit in that, that last answer. One sort of news communication, but just general communication too, like the internet now is, is a utility that's very fundamental to our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about the internet, we're talking about the means through which people get access to their emergency supplies, uh, the means uh, through which they get access to healthcare. So it's it's become very much a channel through which people get access to those other essential utilities. And I think that's part of the reason why that case is made that access is is a fundamental human right. I do want to ask your opinion on this, um, and that's Elon Musk, as I'm sure you've seen, recently proposed providing Starlink internet to internationally recognized organizations. He did this in Ukraine as well. Is that something that could work in your view? Yeah, I mean, this is challenging because uh, we've seen Elon Musk walk into this situation before with Ukraine. And uh, he's got to the situation where he doesn't want to take sides in a conflict. And he's taking that to something of an extreme. At the moment, he's said that he will supply internet access to uh, vetted, internationally recognized humanitarian organizations. This is actually, this has the potential to annoy both sides because Israel considers the humanitarian organizations to be the hotbed of activity, of, of, of the, those uh, terrorist activities. And then you've got the other side, you've got uh, Gazans, who obviously, uh, this, this still doesn't help their journalists, it doesn't help their, um, their uh, potentially their medical uh, organizations, and organizations that don't fall under that very limited scope of, of international human, humanitarian organizations. So I think that it doesn't make either side happy. And in a way, uh, you can see where he's coming from and that he doesn't want to get involved, but that might not achieve what he wants. Is there any way to parse that out and just provide internet to certain groups, not others, certain people, not others? You know, we don't, I guess, for most of the world, we don't think of internet connectivity in those terms. And so I guess, is that even feasible? Yeah, I think for uh, Starlink, the Starlink technology, it is feasible because they have a very precise a subscriber database. And particularly because it's a satellite technology, they also have the exact ge- geographic coordinates where your terminal is based. So they know who you are and they know exactly where you are. So given those two data points, they can create some really fine-grained access controls. And that's what we understand that they're, they're actually doing. So I mean, it could have played out a different way. If Starlink had been more like a utility where people sign in and, and it just works uh, once you've paid your, paid your fees, then I think uh, Elon wouldn't have had to get into this debate. But the way that subscriber model is based, I think they do know exactly who is using it. They do know exactly where it's being used. And therefore, something that perhaps they don't want to be their responsibility has now become their responsibility. Got it. Well, just one last question for you. And that's and it struck me in listening to your your answer and this idea of, you know, news and news getting out and and without that a misinformation vacuum kind of emerging. I think the reasons why people living in Gaza need and want internet access um, are pretty clear. But from your answer there, it it strikes me that the rest of us should also want internet access in Gaza if if we want reliable information about what's unfolding there with this conflict. Well, yeah, there's two perspectives here. I mean, there's one which is the needs of the victims, whether they're victims on the Israeli side or the Gazan side. And there's also the kind of um, perhaps slightly selfish desire to actually be informed, but also critical in terms of getting the records straight and getting the truth uh, on record in terms of uh, we will never know exactly what happened if that connectivity isn't there. I think that um, it also can feed into propaganda. 
if that information isn't authentic, then people are going to create the worst possible image of either side, and that's going to fuel more hatred and more conflict, which isn't isn't what we need right now. Well, Alp, listen, thank you so much for joining us on Politico Tech. Yeah, my pleasure. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's show comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overley. I'll see you back here tomorrow.